A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimt waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kauten Schabes hat es getan. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, it is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian Welcome and tour guide. Welcome to Jewish Yehuda History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this tribute episode to uh, Rav David Salavechik has been generously sponsored anonymously by a Talmud of his Le'ili Nishmasa, it should be in his memory. Um, it was a very rough day um, for the Jewish people a couple of days ago. Uh, three losses of Torah leaders in one day. Um, Rav David Salavechik and Rabbi Yitzhak Shiner, Kamenitz, and Rabbi Dr. Abraham J. Tversky, um, a famous uh, psychiatrist and rabbi, um, and the, the, definitely all three of them deserve an appropriate uh, tribute episode on Jewish History Semites. I always like to take these great people and uh, put them in their historical context so we can better understand their contribution uh, to the Jewish people and to Jewish history. So this one will be devoted to Rav David Salavechik, so hopefully we'll get to the other ones um, at a future opportunity so they're if uh, you'd like to sponsor one of those tributes or any other episode of Jewish History Soundbites, please be in touch with me about sponsorship opportunities. I do want to thank. Um, I spoke. Had the I didn't. I didn't know Reb David uh, personally at all. I met him a couple of times, but um, I wanted to have uh, have the opportunity to speak to people who did know him. So I had uh, the opportunity to speak to a couple of Talmidim of his. And I want to thank them for their contribution to information and stories um, about Rabbi David and his world. So I want to thank you, Dovi Zatterer and Rabbi Yitzchak David Keller, who assisted with the information and the preparation of this podcast. And both of them insisted that there's many other Talmidim who are much older and greater than they, and uh, they minimize their contribution, but I don't want to minimize it at all. Before we go into it, I just want to mention a couple of uh, letters I received from the recent episode we had on Reb Shulam Eliezerl Ratzfert, the son of the Divrei Chaim. Um, one of them uh, shared a contemporary edition. Uh, uh, ad- here, here it goes. You should be aware that there is a Reb Shulam Eliezer de Ratzfert Stiebel that was started in Barra Park in the last few years and now boasts a healthy and growing chevra of over 100 plus members. The hush of a young Rav of this shul is Reb Chaim Hirsch Teitelbaum Shlita, who is a grandson 
of the Satmar Rebbe. I presume he means one of the Satmar Rebbe's. And another one who just wrote this in, Rabbi Abraham J. Twersky, who I just mentioned, who just passed away, was a son of the oldest daughter of the Kedusha Siyan of Babav. In other words, he is also a great-grandson of the Ratzfer Rebbe, who was the subject of your podcast. Um, also, some people submitted different versions and testimonies of his going to the gas chambers, which adds a lot to the story also. some uh, Apparently, there was... Uh, other people who witnessed him uh, during those getting off the train and walking to the gas chamber. So there's definitely um, some some other uh, stories out there. But I want to get now to David Salavechik. Um He was the last of a generation, literally. He was, and he was incredibly old. He was 99 years old. So he lived through an almost an entire century. He, the, he was the last surviving male son of the Briskarov. He's not the last surviving child. He has a sister. Rebetzin Rivka Schiff, maybe she live and be well. In fact, when uh, when I was in yeshiva, they used to say a joke about his age. Um, they said that he has no tradition. In, Br- in Brisk, they're all about the Messiah, the tradition. And everything is done according to tradition. And they said he has no Messiah how to live at this age, because he's the first Brisker to live so long. He's, none of his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, no one... Had so had such a merited such a long life, so he has no tradition in the family about what he's supposed to do at the age of eighty and ninety and ninety-five and older. His age became legendary because he belonged to another generation, another world. He grew up in 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 Brisk. Um, the uh, he uh, I remember that the people thought he was so old. I had a funny encounter in yeshiva. There was there was a someone who in. Came up in the conversation that that someone who had passed away was might have been the last one in the world. This is going back, uh, I don't know, fifteen years ago or so. Um, the last one in the world who had seen Reb Chaim Brisker, the grandfather of Reb David Salavechik. And someone got up and said, "What are you talking about? Reb David Salavechik is alive and well, and he he at his bris, Reb Chaim Brisker was his sandik. The people thought he was so old that he uh, that he was even alive when Reb Chaim was. Of course, he was not." Um, he his older brother was named Chaim, uh, named after his grandfather. So David was born at least three years after Chaim passed away. So that fellow was incorrect. But it's just giving out the idea, just you know, presents the idea that people just saw him as so old that he was just uh, belonged to another world and another generation, and really, really a piece of history. Um, I met him a few times. I remember when I first moved to Israel, I was still young. It was well over 20 years ago, and uh, I met him at, a couple of months later at, at some sort of event, and I didn't know who he was, and someone pointed him out to me and said, this is a son of the Briskarov, Rav David Salavajik. I was like, wow, he must be old. He's a son of the Briskarov. He looked old. He looked uh, you know, prestigious already then, and, and, to, and over 20 years later, he was still around, so then he, uh, he was really old. Um, there are... Um, uh, all types of sources about his early years, you know, the Meller books about his father, the Briskarov, and other articles. And uh, like I said, I got to speak to students of his that were good sources uh, as well for this, uh, to, tell, to share about who he was. And he grew up in Brisk, um, like I said, in about 1921, but we don't know exactly when he was born, um, approximately 1921. And he and he um, so it means he was nineteen when the war broke out. So he really, really grew up in the town. It wasn't like uh, it wasn't like he was a little you know baby child when he left. 
And um, he, I remember uh, hearing Rabarin Leib Steinman uh, mentioning how he remembers Rab David Soloveitchik in Cheder. He, used to, he remembers, uh, I think Rabarin was a drop older, but he remembered him. They they, they attended the same Cheder together. Um, and he grows up, and his father, the Briskarov, is his primary Rebbe. And then it comes the time at the beginning of the war uh, when they have to escape from Europe. So his, he, he joins up with his father. His, his father was was on vacation, and uh, his father had asthma. Biskarov had bad had health issues, and his doctors had ordered him to go and spend an extensive amount of time. And he used to take the opportunity every summer to spend them in, in, in the mountainous resorts area areas to help his lungs and his breathing. Um, it was something that was very important for his health. Later on, he would do the same when he would uh, travel to Switzerland every year. So, so the Sir so David is at home in Brisk with his siblings, with his mother, Rebetzin Alta Hindel, and the Rav is out with um, at in Krenitz, wherever he went every summer, um, with uh, his oldest son, Rav Beryl. And the war broke out, and the Brisk Rav makes it to Warsaw, and then he escapes to Vilna. A whole harrowing escape, and there's quite a lot of details and a whole, a whole, uh, a whole story. And uh, and in the meantime, the the rest of the family is still in Brisk, and the Rebetzin sends the children in, in a couple of shifts to join their father. And in one of the early, I think the first shift, Reb David goes with a couple of his siblings to join their father. You have to remember the that uh, in the Molotov on Ribbentrop Pact. So the secret clause of that pact, which is signed a week before the war begins in 1939, is that the division of Poland, so the Red Army enters eastern Poland, and the Nazi, the German, the Wehrmacht, enters central and western Poland. And Brisk is in the eastern part. In fact, Brisk, Brisk was Brestlitvosk, was the place where the German and Russian armies met, and they actually had a joint march together, military march together, the two allies an amazing picture they have of these two armies who were allies, and then uh, later on in the war, you know, uh, had the most bloody war against each other in, in human history. But um, but that took place in Brisk, actually. So so Reb David, uh, in now under the Soviets, he escapes to join his father, and he joins up with him in Vilna, and um, and from there they escape to. Uh, to uh, to Israel, he, the Rav comes with the, with a bunch of his kids, with seven of his children, um, five boys and two girls, and um, unfortunately, the Rebetzin and the other three children were not able to make it out, and they were later killed by the Nazis, Rav David's siblings and his mother. Um, so they make it they make it uh, to uh, Israel in the, the beginning of 1941, and eventually, what Rav David does is he gets married into the prestigious. Sternbuch family. The Sternbuch family is a very prominent family in in Switzerland at the time, in St. Gallen and in Zurich and other parts of Switzerland. They were a originally from Hungary, so it was a Hungarian Heimische family, and they um, were were like a whole tribe in Switzerland. They had immigrated to Switzerland earlier, and um, there were nine brothers, I think, or nine siblings, or nine brothers. So it was a huge uh, family. Um, that you know, belonged to, to, to this as many branches, and there's the famous uh, activist during the war, which is Reishish Sternbach and uh, others. So one of the members of the family had already made it to England, and that was a fellow by the name of Usher Sternbach. And he 
um, he had a bunch of children, and he uh, did well with his uh, with his with his children. One of his sons is Rabbi Moshe Sternbach, um, may he live and be well, who's you know well known, one of the greatest rabbis living today. And then he has a son-in-law who was a Dayan in England, Dayan Chanoich uh, Aaron Troy. And then he had another son-in-law whose name was Reb Chaim Yaakov Arieli, whose son is Reb Asher Arieli. And then he had another daughter, um, Reb Tzin Yehudis, or Reb Tzin Judy, uh, who, uh, who married Reb David Soloveitchik. And um, so he marries into this very prestigious family, and he joins the Sternbuch clan. In fact, I remember when I was in the mirror and Rabbi Shariyeli was my Rebbe, so he would sometimes refer to the Fetter of David. He, several times he told me well, the, the, the Fetter of David. He spoke to the, the uh, his uncle, Rabbi David Salavechik, so he enjoyed a good relationship with him. And he, he quoted a few things from him, about things that he did, and he asked him about certain brisker customs, and uh, about Shema, and about burning the chametz. I remember there's a couple of things that, uh, of course, I don't remember the Torah, I just remember that uh, Rabbi Asher told me that. But um, Rabbi, Rabbi David settles down, and he, he lived in Geula. In fact, I think I mentioned on another episode about the uh, circle of Rav Kook, the students of Rav Kook, that one of Rabbi David's neighbors for decades was the, the Rav HaNazir, Rabbi David Kayan, who was a close student of Rav Kook, and he was a Nazir, and he was a a, a Rebbe in Merkaz Harav. And in fact, one time, the Nazir, after the Six-Day War, brought a stone from Har Habayis, from the Temple Mount, to, to his home. And uh, he showed it to his young neighbor, Rabbi David, who, who, who went wild. He said, it's from Har Habayis, you can't touch it, we're Tomei. And they, you know, they, there must have been a lively relationship, the Brisker and the Nazir, both uh, you know personalities. But already at a young age, even before he gets married, while he's still single, Reb David was already a teacher, an educator, a Rebbe, something that he would remain his entire life. He's really Reb Meshulam David. He was named after his his mother's father or grandfather, Eurbach. His, his mother came from that uh, rabbinical family in Europe. So, in fact, uh, Reb Baruch Mordechai Izrachi uh, said that uh, the one who made him who he is today was Reb David Salavechik. And he owes everything to him. He's the one who brought him close to the study of Torah. And uh, what Rabbi David Soloveitchik would do as a young bacher in his 20s was that he would deliver chaburas in a local-based medrash. He would deliver classes for students from the Chevron Yeshiva in those days when he was himself was single. So he literally has Talmidim. He has students spanning, I would guess, over 70 years, probably 75 years. I don't know anyone in the world who has Talmidim for such a long time, people from all ages, from all eras, from all backgrounds, um, for literally for well over 70 years, probably 75, close to his, right in his young 20s, he was delivering these chaburas in a local-based medrash for students from the Chavani Yeshiva, and uh, literally decades of Talmidim. And he eventually starts his own yeshiva in uh, shortly after his father's passing, probably a year or two, in the early 60s. While his brother, Rebarel, was still alive and he ran the main yeshiva of Brisk, where the Brisker of um, had started off, it wasn't really an official yeshiva, then Rebarel slowly made it into a, a uh, more established institution. But during that time already, uh, in, the, in the 1960s, Rebdavid started his own. And the reason he did so is because his father, the Brisker of, told him that he should start teaching Torah, he should start saying Chaburas, he should start a yeshiva. So over the years, it developed from ad hoc Chaburas 
to a formal yeshiva institution and, and with lots of success. I mean, it became a very large and prestigious yeshiva. Um, so it, 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 it uh, he, um, he was, you see, he starts early on and, and, uh, like I said, with these Hevernbacher, but it eventually becomes his, his own institution. Um, the current building, of course, is much newer. It's, it's, uh, it's only a little over 20 years old. They moved into their own building and, into the Yerushalayim neighborhood of, right off of Ezra's Tyra, but um, the yeshiva was around for a long time before that. Um, when his father was alive, when the Briscoe was alive, see, he wrote down his father's Tyra. Um, after his father's passing, that's when he began writing his own. Um, and he, he, so he had some of the original writings of his father's, um, you know, Chidushe Tyra that he had, and then he went on to write much of his own. His, his, his like his life was his students. His Talmidim were the ones who built the yeshiva, and the the reason they did it is because it came from their own initiative. The same way that sons help the father with the family business, or the sons come to assist the father in building the sukkah before sukkahs, so the Talmidim got together and went ahead and built the yeshiva for him. He didn't go fundraising by his students. He didn't go and demand money from them or support. They went ahead and uh, out of the love that they had for the Rebbe that they had, they decided to build it up and to give, you know, get, build, build a building. An amazing relationship that he had with his uh, Talmidim over the years, quite unique, actually. He never did any fundraising. It came all, all on their own. In fact, uh, one of the uh, Talmidim I spoke to, so I said, oh, so you mean there was like a group of alumni that got together? So he said, no, it wasn't alumni. It was Talmidim. It was students. In other words, he didn't like even the term alumni. These people, you know, alumni is of an institution. And over this yeshiva of David, it wasn't an institution. It was their Talmidim of his. It was even called Yeshiva's Hagramad Soloveitchik, Yeshiva of Hagoyin Reb Meshulam David Soloveitchik. Uh, it was, that, that was the name. It was his, it was him. That's, that's what it was. Um, the, uh, there was one, uh, one donor who, who, um, who donated money for the yeshiva, and then he asked Reb David in, in turn, say Kaddish, and study Torah in memory of this donor's father. And Reb David did that religiously for the rest of his life, because it was a serious commitment. It was something that he asked to do 30, 40 years ago when he donated money for the yeshiva, so he took it seriously. He never stopped. One time a donor was promised that if he would donate a, some money for the yeshiva, then he would receive an autographed copy of one of the brisker the Sfarim, either about from his father, Biskarov, or Abchaim, I don't know which one. Um, and for some reason, it never happened. And uh, this person mentioned it to a student of, of Reb David Soloveitchik, that he never got it. Now, at this time, this was just this past year, this past summer. Reb David was already sick, and um, and he mentioned it to him, the student mentioned it to him, that this donor... Uh, uh, still had not gotten this this uh, safer that this autographed uh, safer that he was promised so many years before. So immediately, Rav David's son and successor, as at the helm of the yeshiva, Rav Velvel, he wrote out a note, uh, and Rav David went ahead and signed it. Very weak already, he was already sick. He was already in the hospital. It might have been the last time he signed anything. But after all those years, he said it's a debt we have to pay back. If this person was promised it, then he's going to get it. And there's no, there's no two ways about it. Um, so there's, you know, there's also, again, when I was in Yeshiva, we used to make jokes about this, which one is the real brisk? We have the brisk where the brisker of, uh, lived, 
on Rehov Press in Yerushalayim, where his son Rav Beryl took over. And in 1981, when Rav Beryl passed away, so his son, who's today the Rosh Hashiva Rav Ram Yeshua Soloveitchik, uh, took his place. So is that the genuine, real McCoy Brisk, or is Rav David Soloveitchik, who's a previous generation, he's the son of the Brisk Rav, is that the real one? So I don't think there's any good answer to that, and everyone's, uh, you know, we're going to leave it peacefully. But um, but like I said, one of the reasons that the yeshiva is called yeshiva's hagramad is because it's not a competition. This is not brisk. Brisk is that yeshiva. It's it's, it's another yeshiva. It's, he's not taking away the name. He's not trying to compete with anybody. Um, he did it when his brother was alive. When Rebbe was alive, it was uh, you know he was he was about um, teaching Torah, teaching Yiras Shemayim, and and uh, and uh, and. And bringing out Kvayt Shemayim, the honor of God in the world. It wasn't about, uh, you know, uh, you know, my institution is better, and that, that that's not what it was. Uh, it was all about with these great people. Um, he built people. He his Talmudim were like his children, and you got to see it when you visited him on on uh, on Sukkis when it was open to the you know to the whole wide world, and the his students from different decades, from all ages, from different languages, from different countries, different backgrounds. The range of people that were simply there, and they would keep in touch with him, and he would keep in touch with all of them, and knew how to relate to all of them. You saw the whole diversity, and and how he was completely relatable and comfortable with each one in their background, their family. Um, one time, a, a student of his was leaving early uh, to go to attend summer camp, or to run a summer camp, or to have a job in a summer camp, whatever it was, and uh, you know, David. Uh, wasn't too happy about it. So he spent quite a bit of time in the conversation trying to convince him out of it. And at some point he realized that this boy is not going to listen to him. He's going. He's going in for the summer. He can't He can't miss his camp and color war and everything. It's very important. So he said to him, he said, if this would be my, if you, this would be my son who was going, I would have tremendous agmas nefesh. I would have, it would bother me very much. So you understand why I'm, investing in this conversation with you, because you're to me like a son. There was no difference to him if it was his son or if it was his student. He would daven very often by the kaisel, um, once a week at certain points in his life, once a month. He would also go to Kever Rachel, um, and he would study. He would daven for his Talmidim to, to have success. He would daven for every single one of his Talmidim. Uh, he he um, one time... A student went in to speak to him and said, uh, "What?" he asked him, what are you doing in America? When you move back, what are you doing there? And he said, oh, I'm affiliated with a kailal in the place where I live. So he said, "He said, you know, there's Talmidim who come back and they say that they became a lawyer. I don't have a yeshiva to make lawyers. That's not what my yeshiva is for. So, uh, so I'm happy that you tell me that you're affiliated with this kailal. So he, you know, he had his expectations, a certain brisker elitism also out of the the products that he was trying to produce. Uh, he was the only brisker, especially of his generation, who allowed his own sfarim and his own um, his own chidushim to be published while he was still alive. So he was, you know, a little bit different. He wanted he wanted it to be able to be accessible. He even gave his approval to the history books written about brisk by uh, by uh, Shimon Meller and uh, and uh, and others. Um, to write about uh, the brisk, as long as you're accurate, as long as you write it with detail. He was a phenomenal storyteller, and with the very, very brisk uh, trait of attention to detail, of uh, saying when they would when he would describe his childhood in brisk and things that he remembered, he would he would take the street names 
and uh, and exactly where it was. And he, there was nothing that he ever forgot. He forgot. He remembered everything about the town as if he had never left it. And um, and and when relating stories uh, again, uh, you know, like as a, uh, I appreciate these things about how they they the accuracy and the detail and the attention to details was something very important to him. But he he was very accessible, very easy to talk to, especially you know until his later years for sure. Um, he uh, he he said his 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 son Ravelvel, um was is married to the daughter of Rebero Pavarsky, the Rashiva in Panovish. and his mechutin Rebero Pavarsky mentioned that uh, you know when you think when you see Reb David Salavechik, you see the essence of Yiras Shemayim, a fear of God. It tells the Rosh Yeshiva that recently passed away, uh, Reb Chaim Dave Keller. He said he would advise his students who were going to Reb David Salavechik's yeshiva, they would say to chap Yiras Shemayim, to get the Yiras Shemayim from Reb David. Why is that? Uh, why is that? Uh, you know, again, there's a lot of people have Yiras Shemayim out there. The reason I thought that it was so interesting is because most people, when they're going to a place like Brisk, it's to it's to become a Brisker. There's a certain style of learning. There's the analytical style of Reb Chaim and the Briskerav. When you're going to Brisk, you're going to study Kadshim. You're going to get the Derech Halimur. They're getting the, the style of learning of Brisk. It's all about. It's all revolving around the intellectual pursuit of the type of. Uh, Talmudic study that's expected in a brisker institution. And here, we have a bit of a, of a unique situation. The reason to go to Reb David Salvechik is, of course, all that, but it's for much more also, because Reb David personified Yeres Shemayim, and that's what people saw about him. In fact, um, in fact, uh, they, they would have, sometimes at his house, at the occasions, it was a Yantif, it was Paporim, or it was Shabbos, there would be singing at his house, and the singing he would get really into. It. He was almost like a rebbe, uh, and he would, he would he would get into the singing. There's even a letter from Rebetzin Rifkeshif, his younger sister, um, who was writing to her father in Switzerland. Again, so her father was still alive. This is the 1950s. This is when Reb David is much younger, and is and he she describes in the letter. And at the Zmiris on Shabbos, she spent Shabbos by her brother Reb David. She was still single. And she said that the Zmiris on Shabbos, the, the singing at the Shabbos table, was so exciting and was so animated that he got up spontaneously to dance in the middle of the Suda. Amazing uh, testimony of his sister when her David was yet young and didn't have Talmidim all around him and he, how he gets into the singing. Um, he loved his Talmidim, but at the same time they were very in awe of him, very scared because he was a very scary person at the same time because he was he was demanding, or less so in later years. Um, and, uh, in his in his shir, he he would even quote his talmidim. If someone would say a good, said, tell him something, he would say over that vart in the shir. And at the end, after everyone had understood it and internalized it, he wanted them to be distracted by who said it and who didn't say it. But at the end, he would say, "And you know who said it? This this young man said it um, at night." He delivered a shear that went through the entire shas. He wasn't limited to the kudshim that uh, Brisk uh, was known for, because at night he would have a shas shear that he would develop each sugya from scratch, as if he was reading it from the first time, and uh, go through the Rashi and the Taisvis, really like studying it and developing it and building it up um, from uh, from from bottom up. Um, he. If his, with his Talmidim, with his own students, it was a balance of warmth and toughness, like I said. 
Uh, but when it came to public stances, he took a very strong and often very extreme view. And he wasn't shy about it. He believed very strongly about his his uh, positions as far as um, you know ideological uh, uh, positions about Zionism, very, very anti, anti-the Zionist ideals and the government. And he, he spoke out. He spoke out publicly whenever he felt the need to do so. Um, because uh, it was his conviction, both uh, the brisker tradition um, from his father and grandfather, and also of, of truth. Um, and that's uh, he, and the issues of the day that were confronting the Jewish people. He would not he would not be shy about it. Uh, here's a, a couple of uh, good stories that I heard from shared by these students of his. Uh, one time when Reb David made a wedding for a grandchild, so the different Talmidim in the yeshiva who are going home to the United States, and we're going to come back before the wedding. So the, the different ones were tasked with bringing uh, something from the United States to help to participate with the wedding. So one student asked him, what can I bring? What can I get you? So Reb David responded, and what the, what the American Talmud thought that he heard said was sardinim. He thought he had said sardines. Now, he, like, a, like a chassid to his Rebbe, he was not going to question so he said, okay, I have no idea why he would need sardines for the wedding, but if he said sardines, sardinim, he's coming back with sardines. He comes back from, from America with a suitcase full of sardines, shows up at Reb David's house, Reb David and his wife start laughing hysterically. He said, I said sardinim, which means in Hebrew sheets or linen, for the young couple, they should have uh, linen for their for their new apartment, not sardines. So it became the running joke about the, the sardinum sardinum mix up. And eventually, he moved back. He moved back to America, and, and the life went on. Years later, he came to Israel for a visit, and he was at the Kaisel, and he meets his Rebbe, his Rosh Hashiva of David Salvechik, davening at the Kaisel. So he says to him, Rebbe, do you remember me? He said, Of course, the sardinum. You're the sardine person. Um, he was, um, anytime someone came to the yeshiva, he was told, if you don't come every day, on time, both to the first seder in the morning and the second seder in the afternoon, and on Fridays, then, then, uh, if you don't do all that, even once, then you're a ganav, you're a thief. You're taking the yeshiva food, you're sitting in the yeshiva's base medrash. That's inappropriate. You're committed to being here every single day on time. And on Erev Yom Kippur, people would, line up to ask him for his forgiveness, because if they may have been uh, remiss in coming on time every day, he would actually stand there, again, during when he was younger years. And he, if the, the, the day's schedule started at 9 o'clock, 9.15, he would stand there and he would give it to you if you came late. It was You, you, didn't, come, you didn't come late and you didn't miss a day. That was uh, just not something he would do. He would, demanded full and complete, uh, you're there. If you're coming here and coming to the yeshiva, then you're completely there. He was... Um, he would come to the yeshiva every day. He was always in the base medrash, almost every day, very often, until again, until a few years ago. He would walk alone or with one person. So again, you'd even see him in the streets walking, very accessible. When he would daven, when he would daven Shemana Esrei on a regular day, three times a day, it was Shemana Esrei, between 45 minutes and an hour, he would cry. His davening was like, uh, again, uh, something, uh, something, uh, you know, Almost unworldly and something you might not even expect um, um, from uh, from a brisker, from a, he's a, like a, a, a real a real davener. Um, he personally would dole out 
the chalukah, the, the brisker yeshiva, this also comes from the brisker rab, to distribute a monetary compensation for every single student of the yeshiva, not not uh, not just to the married students, but to the single students as well. So the yeshiva, there is a, no tuition, free tuition, not only where there's no tuition, but also each and every single student would receive a cash chalukah to help with their needs for the for that month, and he would give it out on every Reish Chaydesh. And he would count it, he personally distributed it in cash to every single member of the yeshiva. He would count it twice to make sure he gave the right amount. So Reish Chaydesh was always a very tense day because he had to make sure to give out and he had to get to everyone. He had to make sure everyone received it. Now Hanukkah was also a very tense time because, you know, the brisker on Hanukkah, he had to light on time and the right place and everything. So before Shkia, before sundown, he would already be sitting next to where his menorah was and he had to be lighting it. The second the sun went down, he would light his menorah and very tense. So you could just imagine that Reish Chaydesh on Hanukkah is the most tense day of the year in Rameshulam David Salavechik's life. Now in Hanukkah and Reish Chaydesh, he had to give out, uh, distribute the Chalukah. So the people who davened in his private minion, they would receive it in the morning. The rest of the yeshiva would receive it in the afternoon. So the ten members of his private minion would receive it in the morning. One of the members of that minion said to him, why don't you, on Chaydesh Hanukkah, you're so tense and you have to light the menorah on time, you, you're worried about giving it everyone else the chalukah in the afternoon and also being on time to light the menorah. So why don't you, on Chaydesh today, on Hanukkah, give it out at night, after you already lit, and this way you'll be a little more calm. So Rabbi David says, what do you mean? It's easier for you to say. You already got your chalukah this morning, but everyone else is waiting for it in the afternoon. And I can't push it off a few hours to the evening. People want. People know that they they expect it then, and uh, you know the the uh, people knew how much he cared about them. Um, he, by his levaya, many people were crying from all different ages because they knew that he cared about them. It wasn't just that he was a rebbe and taught them so much Torah, but it was that he they knew that he cared. Um, he gave a chumashir also in the custom of of brisk of his father. And uh, people would cram in, squish in just to see him, to hear him, an indescribable uh, situation where he would start off with his father's Tyra on that week's Parsha, and then he would go into some stories, and it was story time also. And then his his Yerushamayim, and then his Kanoyas, his zealotry, anti-Zionist, and, his, uh, and he would sometimes cry. It really bothered him. It really meant it. It wasn't just a uh, superficial uh, um, something that he was upset about. It's something that really went... And, and bothered him. Um, in, in, um, he, like I said earlier, he, when he would go to the Kaisel, he would daven for every single one in the yeshiva. And he would sat, sit far away, like his father did. He'd sit father, far away from the Kaisel. He wouldn't go close. He wasn't sure how close you're allowed to go. Uh, Tameh and Harabayas and all that. Um, but he, he saw the Beinadam Lechaveirai, the care for another Jew, for his students, as serious business, it's Taira, it's, it's halacha. When you asked him to daven for you, uh, he would, he would, uh, so for someone, for someone, for someone in the family or, you know, he, you had to come back to him and give him an update because if you didn't, he would daven forever. You, you asked him to daven, so he's going to go ahead and daven. Um, so getting back to his visits to the Kaisal to daven for the guys in the yeshiva. So there was once, there's a, a legend that went in the yeshiva. So hopefully it happened. If not, then it could have happened. Then uh, there was a fellow who was not accepted. He said, I don't have room. I, I can't I can't accept you. So he said, uh, can you? Can I at least sit in the base medrash with the chavrusa and study? 
Torah in the base Medrash. So he said, okay, you could do that. A few months later, he said, you know, I'm learning in the base Medrash. Can I eat? Can I eat food from the yeshiva also? So he says, okay, you know what? You're a good boy. You can eat food in the yeshiva. You can do this, you can do that every couple of months, another thing. He said, but every time Reb David Salavechik would remind him, but you're not really in yeshiva. You're not accepted. So finally he said to him, what does it make a difference? I'm here in the base medrash. I'm eating in yeshiva. So why am I not in yeshiva? Reb David Salavechik turns to him and says, because I go to the kaisel and I daven for every single boy in the yeshiva and I know how much I can handle. How much in koiches hanefesh, how much I need to invest in crying, in davening for each and every Talmud. And I don't have room for another one right now. And that's why you're not officially in the yeshiva. Uh, the eating here and learning the Spanish, that's okay, that's fine. But that, that to be able to have, and that was exactly measured out. And that's how much he cared about his Talmidim. So this was a little bit about Rav David Salavechik, um, of blessed memory. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, trips, tours, sponsorships, lectures, Subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.